you have your Bibles, will be in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. If you've been visiting, if you're visiting us today, we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew. And all throughout the gospel, the author has been showing us how Jesus is the Christ. This has been his goal. He's been trying to show us that Jesus is the sovereign king. That he's the long-awaited savior of the world. The last several weeks, we've seen a stark contrast between the wickedness of man, the sinfulness of man, and the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus. Last week, we saw that Jesus was betrayed by one of his own and that he was arrested. We saw the beginning of his trial with the story ending with Jesus being sent to be flogged or whipped and crucified. And that's where our story picks up today. As we look at our passage today, I want us to notice that there are three scenes centered around the crucifixion. You'll notice that Jesus will be led to be crucified. You'll see that they'll crucify Jesus. And the last scene we'll see that he will hang crucified among those who hated him. All of this is to show us, each scene is to show us that despite the mockery, Despite the crucifixion, despite the hatred that we will see, Jesus is the triumphant king who saves his people from their sins. Jesus is the triumphant king who saves his people from their sins. Let us begin today by looking at our first scene the mockery of the king. Look with me at verses 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the rope and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Last week in verse 26, we were told that Jesus was flogged. He was whipped before the scene that we're in. Historians tell us what this process was like. The victim was stripped of his clothes and they tied him to a post as they whipped him. The whip would have been composed, composed of leather strips with pieces of bones or metals or the sharp, sharp objects tied to the strips. And they would have began to whip 
Jesus with this. In Jewish law, you could only do 40 lashes. But it's not the Jewish people that are handing out the flogging. It's the Romans. And the Romans had no number by which they were held by. You can imagine what kind of damage this would have caused the victim. Historians say that it wasn't uncommon for the bone to be shown or for the entrails to be exposed or for the victim to even perish because of the whipping. Our text begins today after this sequence with a whole battalion of of, of soldiers gathered around Jesus. 600 Roman soldiers were present. That might be a bit surprising to you because anytime the crucifixion is portrayed, there are only like five soldiers. But Matthew makes it clear. 600 men are present to participate, and to witness. But as we look at our passage today, there are two aspects of Jesus that they mock. The first is they mock Jesus, the sovereign king. Look at it, verses 28 and 29. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put on his head a reed in his right hand. They were kneeling before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. All throughout the gospel, Matthew has been showing us that Jesus is the Christ. In the gospel, we have clearly seen Jesus' kingly power and authority on full display. Matthew has made it clear that Jesus has authority over creation, over the physical world, over the spiritual world, over the authority, he had the authority to forgive sins. The gospel of Matthew is making it clear the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And in these two verses, we see the soldiers mocking the claims they would have heard. Claims made about Jesus being a king. Claims that he was the son of God. They put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns. They put a fake scepter in his hands, scepter in his hands and mocked him. Do you see the irony here? Jesus truly was the sovereign king. Jesus truly was the one in control in this moment. Jesus truly was the man who possessed authority. But look at what they mocked. Secondly, they mocked Jesus, the the Imago Dei. Look at verses 30 and 31. They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. They mocked him and stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Look at all the ways that they degrade Jesus in this moment. They spit on him. 
They beat him. They mock him. They had stripped him naked. This is Jesus, though. Do you know what the Bible says about Jesus? Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We sung it today. He is the true and better Adam. These men whose image is marred with sin because of their hearts, mocking and degrading the very one in whose image and likeness they themselves were created. Do you see the irony? See, church, there's a picture here of the rebellion of man against a holy and perfect God. And we are all guilty of this. Every single one of us in this room are guilty of this. We were all rebels at one time. There are some of you in this room that are in still, that are in still absolute rebellion against God because you fail to believe in whom he's claimed to be. You fail to believe that he indeed is the sovereign king and that he is the savior of the world. You've disregarded the work of Christ and everything that we're about to talk about. But many times we think that rebellion is always outward and open. But the truth is that many times our rebellion against God is subtle, church. It's subtle. It's demonstrated in the subtle pride that keeps us from forgiving our spouse or our neighbor. It's subtle in the idolatry that leads us to a place where we regard ourselves as higher than God. It's evidenced in how we truly prioritize the kingdom, and the king in our lives. Sometimes our rebellion isn't outright and open. But it's very subtle. It's present. But there's good news for the rebellion and the mockery that's demonstrated by the soldiers and by us against Jesus. The scene ends with this transition. They led him away to crucify him. Let's look at the second scene, the crucifixion of the king. Verses 32 through 37. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a school, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he could not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. 
And over his head, they put the charge against him, which, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The story continues. We see the soldiers com compel a witness by the name of Siren to carry Jesus' cross. By this point, after the flogging and the beating, it would have been extremely difficult for Jesus to physically continue to carry his cross. Verse 33 says, they came to a place called Golgotha. In English, we call this place Calvary. It's a Latin word that we get the word skull from. Executions and crucifixions were always done outside the city, normally led, held by popular paths and roads. They did these crucifixions near roads so that those who would pass by would have an example of what would happen if you acted against the governing body. It was a sign. Notice in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Many times people say this drink was to dull or to numb the pain. But if you remain within the context of this text, this isn't compassion from the soldiers. This isn't them trying to help Jesus get by. No, this, this is another way to mock Jesus. This is another way to laugh at him. They had given him something completely undrinkable. This verse, though, is a prophetic statement from Psalm 69. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. There are five prophetic statements in this section alone of Matthew. And I want to briefly highlight them and pass them as, as at the end I want to make an application of them. But they act as a good reminder to us that what is occurring is not a surprise to God. That that what is occurring is actually the plan of God unfolding. That it's his will being carried out. Verse 35 begins with these four words. And when they had crucified him. This is a second prophetic statement that we see from Psalms 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. This is a scene that is taking place during the crucifixion. The enemies of Jesus, not just the religious leaders, but all those who would fail to believe in his messiahship and his kingship are present to crucify him. This is all that Matthew gives us about the scene. Six words on the crucifixion. And the other gospels don't really give us much more. It's likely because the practice of the execution was known around the, around the time of the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was an ancient practice of capital punishment. And the Roman Empire left it for the most heinous of criminals, criminals. And yet we find the perfect Lamb of God 
crucified. But because this isn't a common practice in our time, I want to just communicate some of the details that we are somewhat aware of what Jesus would have suffered on the cross. Crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading process. The soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross through each of his wrists and a place, a nail through his feet, so that his knees would have been moderately flexed. This alone would have caused enormous amount of pain, but that would only be amplified as time progressed. In order to take breaths as he was on the cross, Jesus would have had to pull his arms up and his legs up to draw breaths of air in. But due to the placement of the nails, this would have caused Jesus to put the pressure and strain and the fullness of his weight on his, rest, on his wrist and his legs, only to have to drop back down into his initial position. This bout and battle of pain was necessary in each moment that Jesus would have required a new round of oxygen. This constant battle of intense pain began at nine in the morning and would have continued and remained until the time of his death at 3 p.m. Six hours, Jesus endured the cross. But notice what is done next. The soldiers say, it says that they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 36, then they sat down and kept watch over him there. This is the third prophecy statement from Psalms twenty-two, eighteen. 18. But notice isn't it so interesting what the soldiers do? They sit down and just keep watch. This scene of Jesus being nailed to the cross and the soldiers taking a seat is a perfect picture of what the Savior did to save sinners and what the sinner does to be saved. The Savior willingly gives his life. He's afflicted and wounded. He sheds blood. He bears the full wrath of God, of God. He stands in the place of sinners. And the sinner does absolutely nothing. That is the message of the gospel, church. That Christ would stand in your place and in mine. That he would bear everything so that we might be saved. What did Jesus do for your rebellion and mine? He took our rightful place on the cross. And he suffered and he bled. I really want us to focus on the last section because I want us to see the irony in the victory of the king. Verses 38 through 44. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he, does, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This last section is so interesting because the mocking and the derision, the hatred against Jesus doesn't stop. It only increases as those who pass by join in the mockery. They express their contempt as they wag their heads at Jesus. This is the fourth prophetic statement from Psalms 22.7. In the previous sections, the mocking and the brutality was shown by the Roman soldiers. But now Matthew points out two other groups that would join in in this section. The first group is the crowd. We see their hatred and mocking in verses 39 through 40. We have seen the crowd all throughout the book of Matthew. Sometimes they're following Jesus, waiting for him to deliver them more food, to, to meet their needs. And other times they're mocking him. Disbelieving his comments and his statements. The second group are the chief priests and the religious leaders. The entire time that we've seen them in the book of Matthew, they have been after one goal. The death of Jesus. The removal of Jesus. Oh, but amid this story, amid the mocking, amid the hatred, I don't want us to miss the irony that's happening in this story. I don't want us to miss what Matthew is trying to communicate. How does irony help this story? I want you to hear this definition. Irony is a literary device in which contradictory statements or situations reveal a reality that is different from what appears to be true. This is exactly what is happening in this story. The story looks grim. It looks like Jesus is losing the battle. But the irony is that in the midst of all of this, all that is taking place, Jesus never ceases to be the victorious king. He never ceases to be the Messiah. He never ceases to be the Christ. I want us to see quickly four of these ironies. The first comes from verses 39 through 40. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The crowds mocked Jesus with the same false charge 
that was made that led, him to arrest, led them to arrest Jesus. But look at the irony. We know that Jesus was making this statement because he was talking about this moment. He was speaking about his death and resurrection. He was prophesying that this was going to occur. He was in complete control. But not only that, not only that, the work that Jesus was doing on the cross was making the temple that they treasured obsolete. He was going to act as the new mediator between God and man. There was going to be no necessity to go to the temple and to offer sacrifices because the Lamb of God was being slain for the sins of his people. Mediation with God would no longer be found by inferior men or rituals or sacrifices, but only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The second one, look at the second irony. It's shared by the crowd and the religious leaders in verses 40 and 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. The irony continues. Jesus was there to save sinners. The crowd thought that Jesus had a different purpose than, he was, than what he was doing on the cross. Or as if Jesus was done and not continuing the, his further ministry here of salvation. No, no, listen to the words of Jesus. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The crowd mocked Jesus, failing to see that Jesus was not here on his own accord, but that, on the, that he was here on the Father's accord to save sinners and to give his ransom for many. Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged by on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was becoming a curse for us. He was bearing our sin. He was doing the work of atonement so that our guilt could be removed, so that our sin could be forgiven, so that we could be made whiter than snow. It was during this time that Jesus was acting as our propitiation, meaning he was appeasing and satisfying the wrath of God. That was set over you, that was set over us, as enemies of God. The irony here is that Christ had come to save, not to be saved. Let's look at the third one quickly. It's found in the same verses. The crowd and the religious leaders said, come down from the cross. Let him come down from now from the cross and we will believe the crowd and the religious leaders mocked Jesus about leaving the cross. They thought, if, if you would give us a sign, we'll believe. 
If you come down, then we'll believe. But that's what Jesus was actually doing. Jesus was actually providing the greatest sign. It's one that he mentioned in Matthew chapter 12. He was providing for these people the only sign he had promised. The sign of Jonah. This would be given to them in the moments. It was the first part of the sign. That Jesus would be away for three days and return. This was the beginning of that sign. Lastly, look at the fourth irony. It's found in verse 43. The religious leaders mocked Jesus, saying, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. This was the fulfillment of Psalms 22.8. Not only is there mockery in this statement, but there is also deceit. See the phrasing there in verse 43? If he desires him. A better translation is, if he takes pleasure in him. This echoes Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am pleased. Who was speaking audibly to the crowds and to the religious leaders that were present? This was an audible voice. The gospel tells us who was speaking. It was God. It was God the Father speaking these words about his son. The irony was that Jesus was truly the son of God and the Lord. And it was through his atonement that we would be delivered from our sins. All of these ironies are pointing to a greater truth and revealing a greater reality that is true in this story. It's echoed three times in each scene. Three times we hear the statement, Jesus the King. These mockeries only help to highlight this truth. That while on the cross, Jesus remained the triumphant king who would save his people from their sins. Despite the scene and the picture, the ultimate irony is that the death of Jesus is not a picture of defeat, but of victory. Listen to how John Stott puts it. We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory run and the resurrection the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. Amid the rebellion, the mocking, the hatred, Jesus stood victorious over his enemies, over sin, and over death. The theme for our youth this week and has been belong. They've been learning what it means to belong to Christ. 
and how their identity is shaped by Jesus. And I know this question was answered this week, but it's important. How can I belong to Jesus? How can I belong to God? This picture, this story, is what it takes to belong. This is what had to occur so that you and I might draw near to God. I'm grateful for this text today because it shows us what it took, church family, for us to be brought near into the family of God. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for our sins so that as many as received him, so that many that would place their faith and trust in him, to them he could give them the right to be called children of God. How do you belong to the family of God? You believe and place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what you do. You don't strive. You don't work harder. You don't try to be better. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. I want us to look at how we might respond today. The first one is very simple. If you're visiting here today or you've been coming and, you're, and you don't believe in Jesus, today is the day of salvation for you. Believe and repent. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again three days later to give you new life. And he's calling you to come. At the end of, of our time here, there'll be some pastors here. And in that moment, it's, it's your prerogative to get up and to come and, and, and ask the question I, and just say, I want to belong to Jesus. We would love to, to discuss with you further what, what that means, what, what happens in our lives when we come and are welcomed by our God. But secondly, I want us to notice all of those prophecies taking place, five of them, one after another. I want us to see that God was in complete control. This seems to be the darkest moment in history. And God was in control. That's good news for us today. Because of regardless of where you find yourself this week, regardless of where you find yourself today, God is still in control. You might be looking at where the next paycheck is coming from. Or you may be waiting to hear on a result of a physical test. Or you may not know how, you, how you're supposed to handle your children how to raise them in the fear of the Lord. 
or maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread, God is still in control. And he's given us his word as a hope, as a guide, as a light. Church family, I would ask you not to lose hope. Not to lose hope, but to trust in our God. Thirdly, church family, there is rebellion and sin in our hearts. There is rebellion and sin in our hearts. And Jesus Christ has saved us from that sin. So we are not to walk in shame or in guilt or looking to strive to please our Father. He has forgiven us. But if you're sitting in this room and you have unconfessed sin, bring it before the Father. He is faithful and just to forgive. Lastly, I don't know of any other greater reason, church family, that would leave us, lead us not to worship and proclaim the greatness of this God. This is a story worth telling over and over again. It's a story we ought to tell to our neighbors, to our family members, to those who do not know. There's a God who sent his son to die on their behalf so that they too might be reconciled with God. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the death of Jesus. Because it's in his death, it's in the shedding of his blood that we can find the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Father, that you did not require of us to pay for our own sins or to appease your wrath. No, Lord, you provided a perfect sacrifice so that all who would believe in him might be saved and have everlasting life. Father, we thank you so much the message of the gospel. I'm praying, Father, that you would allow your word to continue to accomplish the work which you set it, set it out forth to do today. Father, for your church, I'm praying, Lord, you would help us to trust you, that you would lead us to confess our sins, that you would lead us to worship you this evening. Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.